Chet Platypus says episode 36. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. Looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. We thought we'd talk about the new film Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, I actually, I, I went into this film thinking I was going to find it kind of boring. Maybe it was going to be quite straightforward or didactic and i was being judgmental and um and uh i guess it also has a storyline where there's quite a big focus on the fbi guy right kind of like the what's the spike lee film that came out um black clansman like so it has this kind of angle and uh and i actually i actually kind of enjoyed it so the the film has these two main characters this william o'neill mm-hmm who's this black FBI informant who ends up going undercover for the FBI in the Chicago, uh, or I guess the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. In the late 60s, I think it's 68, 67, 68. Yeah, and on the other hand, you have the chairman, Fred Hampton. Mm -hmm. So Fred Hampton was really young when he died, I think. 21? Yeah. I think the FBI guy, he's also, he gets roped into the reporting for the FBI when he was 19 as well. Right. After petty crimes. Yeah. And I think most people, what they hear about Fred Hampton is how he died Mm -hmm. uh, in this kind of a massacre that happens where they break into the headquarters and uh, police essentially raid the entire uh, apartment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, Massive shooting. Mm-hmm. while they were sleeping so it was complete surprise attack and mm-hmm. in part uh, i guess as the film shows it was possible because they had this informant who gave the blueprint of the inside of the apartment told them when they would be sleeping etc but the film does a good job i thought at trying to present this william o'neill informant as someone who's kind of caught up in something that is not just of his own doing, right? Mm-hmm. He's not just like the the bad guy. He's he's part of something that has a much longer history. Mm-hmm. So he works for this white FBI agent who we see quite a lot, Roy Mitchell. At one point, Roy Mitchell compares the Black Panthers to the KKK. They're terrorists, mm-hmm. like they're using these tactics. They're just as bad. They're just as bad. But... The FBI is like telling uh, William O'Neill that he's on the right side and that the Black Panther Party is actually deviating from, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the good reform uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Like a terrorist group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I guess originally Roy Mitchell worked on the FBI's investigation into the murders of civil rights activists James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schroener, like he claims in the movie. And the film puts it in the context of this civil rights struggle that splits and that there are the ways in which the movement is pinned against one another. Yeah, this also struck me, the, the scene where the FBI detective 
um, has the discussion uh, with O'Neill about the Panthers being as bad as the KKK. And then, but then later on in the film, this plays out where um, the young kid is murdered and the FBI detective is told this by one of his superiors. And he kind of has this moment of confliction and then he goes on to just kind of gloss over it. Do you know that like, there's this moment of where, well, maybe, um, maybe the work that he's doing isn't this kind of like a continuation of justice and liberty or something, but actually like it's involved with yeah. unjust murders of people. Um, but but nothing happens to him after that moment. He kind of just yeah. goes back into his, he kind of like doubles down on his role in, until the end of the film. Right. The film raises this question of whether or not the narrative that this FBI agent gives himself may be a kind of opportunistic lie that he's on the side of justice and good Whereas he may just be kind of uh, mm-hmm. wanting to climb up the ladder, right? Like you get these kind of, you get these scenes where he's... Oh, there's a nice house and the restaurants and... Mm-hmm. Or, and even William O'Neill, right? So William O'Neill, who's the black informant, at the end they showed this clip of him um, where he's, I guess, the only interview that he ever gave. This is like years later. He gives a, an interview for, um, I think it's in 1990, for Eyes on the Prize, which must be like some kind of American talk show. He he says, uh, I was part of the struggle. That's the bottom line. I wasn't an armchair revolutionary. So that's what you need to know about me. Uh, and at least I had the courage to put it out there. And I think I'll let history speak for me. That's what that's what the informant says, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a funny way in which people's self-understanding in this film, like, raises questions about what they were actually doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it reminds me of, uh, you know, we discussed the um, Adam Curtis a couple episodes ago on our podcast. And there's that famous case of the another FBI undercover operative who infiltrates the Panthers and is trying to get them to commit illegal activities. Um, yeah. But then when uh, during the court case, they actually felt like they were like involved in the Panthers on in a deeper way. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that, you know, the FBI is really trying to... Take them down. <laughs> ...undermine. And, you know, it's like William O'Neill's. he shows them some dynamite at one point. He's like, yeah. this is what we need to do, you know, and, like, people are appalled by it. And, and I know that they um, they were involved in the split between SNCC and the Panthers. And so, like, they're really hands-on in all of this. And um, people will know Contel Pro, which was designed to track down and to kill uh, some of these leaders and and Fred Hampton, even though he was very young, who considered himself a Marxist, I guess we should say a lot of what's covered in the film is him conjuring up these Maoist principles. Yeah. They he I mean he quotes Mao the uh, politics is war without bloodshed. Yeah. Their understanding of what the cops are, I think, is connected to their idea their their ideas from this kind of Maoist framing. So at one point in one of the workshops that Fred Hampton is in, he's asking like, what are the cops? Like, how do we think of the cops? Mm-hmm. And they say that the cops are the quote unquote occupiers. Mm-hmm. At one point in the film, when Fred is hiding out and he, he's gonna be snuck off somewhere, they're gonna go hide. He's mm-hmm. offered up like, you should go to Algeria, right? Because I think by this time- Cleaver's there. Yeah. yeah, Eldridge Cleaver, another Panther member, is already there. He's been training troops, you know, against the colonial, mm-hmm. in the colonial struggle. And there is this connection, at least in their own understanding, between the cops in the United States and the colonialist forces 
in Algeria. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with their third world struggle, their Maoism, and maybe the leftover of a kind of Stalinist imagination of the black nation within the United States, that the cops mm-hmm. are occupiers within the black nation mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. at war with them. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think that's implicit in the movie, if not made entirely explicit, although it, it is in the early scenes they call the cops occupiers. Um, yeah, maybe it's explicit yeah. in the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I wonder how much of that is uh, still around. Mm -hmm. The movie sort of shows this, that a lot of what the Panthers did were the shootouts with the Mm -hmm. cops Mm -hmm. that left a lot of young people dead. And in fact, this is something that in the film, like the entire story behind the death of the 19-year-old that plays like a critical role towards the end of the movie, um, the film makes it seem as if he died... Um, he died under the hands mm-hmm. of police while he was like going in a house. But as far as I can understand, mm-hmm. it seems like he was also involved mm-hmm. in a shootout mm-hmm. and then he died super young. Yeah, I guess this goes back to the, we've, we've um, studied this in Platypus, this late sixties moment yeah. um, and this moment of despair is expressed through gestures of violence being a sign of weakness rather than um, strength. Every instance in which there is a shootout where the Panthers face the police with guns, they are ridiculously outnumbered. Yes, like when they had the shootout on the building and the two people that were firing out the window, I was like, that's just a death sentence, right? (laughs) Right, the two people firing out the window, then Jimmy versus the cops, then when the Panther members killed the cop at at close range and then get yeah. shot, right? Like it's like every every single instance where there's an attempt to fight back yeah. or confront the police, it's done in this way where you kind as an audience member, you're like, this is not gonna work mm-hmm. out. Like they're just gonna get slaughtered mm-hmm. because the cops are so organized and armed, mm-hmm. right? Because the cops are the executive arm of the state. So they're armed and ready. Yeah. And so in some sense, like it feels there's a kind of hopelessness yeah. that I felt as a viewer watching these battles. Even at the end where like they, the, the guy, um, one of the Panthers sees like somebody moving by the door and they kind of get their guns ready. And I'm like, well, what is the point? Like if the police are gonna take you out, they're gonna take you out. Like whether Fred Hampton is drugged or not, they would they could find him and murder him. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then people but, like um, the, the young man who was killed, the 19 year old Jake Winters, then were presented as martyrs for the cause. Yeah, yeah. And Hampton in his speech reiterates this and that there's no better way to die than as a martyr for your cause. And you see Jake Winter's mom go to the Panthers and say, I don't want my son to just be remembered, right, as someone that just got shot by the cops. And like, I don't want that to be the only, the only thing that people know about my son. And so they, yeah. the Black Panthers named some, a medical clinic after him. Um, I guess the one thing we should not neglect to talk about is the moment when the Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers meet up with these, uh, I guess they were the Young Patriots. Oh, the Rainbow Coalition. Yeah, yeah I wanted to bring this up because I guess the, the things that are bearing on the present is the police brutality stuff. 
um and the uh and then yeah. the, the bit about the bit the rainbow coalition stuff kind of this is, kind of shocked me a little because the the panthers go to local gangs and they go to um local like patriots who are like but they affiliate with the confederacy right and he's yeah. like like why don't we work together we can i'm gonna press shit um, and my folks grew up poor they were sharecroppers aka the overseer what if the overseer had banded with the slaves and cut the masters through? Well, then, comrade, we might not be in this funky ass ghetto right now. I'm not talking about the west side or the south side. I'm talking this filthy ass motherfucker right here. Shit. I bet y'all babies getting the same bullshit education. Y'all paying the same taxes to get your heads whooped in by the same motherfucking pigs. Ain't that a trip? We paid in. We paid the pig to run us off of our corners. I felt like it was like complicating the present moment a little bit that um was unexpected. But you know what I mean? I was like, okay. Like, um. Yeah, the young patriots are the ones that are shown in the film. And then later on, you see the young lords. So the Latin American. Mm. Oh, they're not a gang or what are they? Yeah, they're gangs. So what Friend Hampton does is create this um, kind of pact of non-aggression, right? Like a common pact that they actually have a common enemy. Mm -hmm. And in part it was because there was, an, a, there, was, there was a death of a young Lord who'd been shot by this off-duty cop. So it created this common ground, right? Against the police. Mm -hmm. And that looked beyond racial uh, identity. That was about like bringing people together in this kind of anti-poverty, anti-police brutality, uh, program that he called the Rainbow Coalition, and as we know later, Jesse Jackson co-ops this this idea of a Rainbow Coalition. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Adolf Fried has a, a good book on that, on Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition. But here mm -hmm. in its uh, beginnings, at least Hampton imagined that there would be like a cross-racial connection against poverty, against police brutality, brought together, right? And in part, you see in the film how it's about bringing forces together. Right, like people that are organized, that that have you know uh, access to um, to guns. I mean, that a lot of the film is about that, right? Like how much how much force is required. It does raise this question though about this. I don't know what you'd call it, millennial imagination, or I mean, this film was like made by a millennial. Yeah. Um, about what the Panthers are. And it just, it comes down so hard on this question of militancy, right? Like, yeah. it's really hard to see anything outside of that. It's just like, mm -hmm. here are the, the militant people who are ready to die. And then on the mm -hmm. other hand, you have the people that accommodate to like the white establishment. And yeah. those are the two poles and you have to choose. And in that yeah. way, I think it does actually a disservice to this mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also in the in the title. I'm not quite sure the deeper meaning of the title, but um, and maybe there is. But Judas and the Black Messiah, so Hampton being the Messiah. Um. Um, maybe I could do a plug here. I know that on this episode we're going to be featuring a segment with Chris Catrone. We'll be introducing the reading groups that we're doing over the summer. One of the reading groups is on the Black Question and the Left from 1776 to BLM to Black Lives Matter. And I'll be, I'm leading that effort. It happens uh, every Tuesday, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we are going to be reading some of the, the people in SNCC. There are interviews with Black Panther Party members that are suggested readings. And so if you'd like to know more about this, the history of the Black question and what the trajectory mm -hmm. of the civil rights movement and the Black power turn, I would recommend that you join us. Yeah. 
if you want to do a deeper dive you want to do yeah. a deeper dive yeah and i guess platypus has got a history of actually hosting interviews with members of the black panther party or um, yeah. on the black question and then we will include some links in the description to those as well so you can check them out I would recommend that people listen to, we have a couple of events that we've done on police brutality in the left, and we get into this conceptualization, like what are the cops? Like what, what is the police? And if there is a place to advance a clarification on the left, I think it really needs to be on emphasizing what do we mean when we talk about the police? Mm -hmm. um, are we talking about the agents of imperialism? Are we talking about like the white racists who are taking, no, right? Like, a historical phenomena. The cops mm -hmm. are the mm -hmm. armed force of the state. And insofar as we have capitalist society with a Bonapartist state, you need the police. Why do they appear as necessary? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. I guess we, we get into this in a little bit in the Kill the Bill um, interview I do with Rivka Brown up and coming in this episode that's right all right cool welcome to another episode of shit platypus says in this episode sophia freeman sits down with navara media's rivka brown to discuss the police sentencing and courts bill and the anti-austerity left Later, she talks to Chris Catron to discuss the summer reading groups for the Platypus Affiliated Society on Adorno's negative dialectics, Hegel and Marxism, and the Black Question and the Left from 1776 to Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to know more about Platypus, its reading groups, coffee breaks, public forest, greenings, etc., you can visit platypus1917.org, that is the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Now that we're back to in-person activities, you can contact us via the contact page on our website to see if we have any activities in your area. Face-to-face -face is better, after all, right? So I'm here with Rivka Brown, who's a commissioning editor and reporter at Navarra Media, and she's also involved with the London Renters Union. And she's here to give us some more information about Kill the Bill and the protests that have been happening in London. Um, so hi, Rivka. How did hi, you? Sophia. Hi. How did you become involved on the left? Um, and what's your your history? Yeah, so um, I only have like a very recent history of direct action on the left. My leftism I suppose developed primarily um, through my study of literature actually and then post-colonial literature reading Frantz Fanon, Edward Said, Achille Mbembe and so on and developing a kind of understanding of, of colonialism and, and power through literature um, but really actually you know my involvement with direct action only developed much later through a number of things um, and primarily through kind of my um, situation in, in the British Jewish community. Um, you know, gradually realizing after I left university, um, particularly after a trip to um, the West Bank, you know, my first trip over the Green Line in my life, how kind of Hasbara and the influence of, of, of Zionism had really like warped my um, political education. And so wanting to become involved in anti-occupation work um, 
and which took the form of um, membership of Na'amod, which is a newish group, which you may have heard of. It's known as British Jews Against the Occupation. And then um, I suppose like 2019 kind of accelerating some of that, um, especially with anti-Semitism being at the forefront as a kind of political issue and wanting to kind of I suppose, extrapolate some of the things that were going on there, setting up a media organization called Vashti. So I suppose I've kind of, yeah, like developed a lot of my um, direct action politics and, 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 and kind of activism through through my um, Jewish communal life. But also, as you say, through the London Renters Union and last year finding myself like a lot of people um, suddenly with less work or no work at times and, uh, you know, the rent still being due and feeling a really strong need to, to do something about that um, on behalf of other people as much as myself. And I got very involved in a, a particular campaign on a block that I don't live in near me that's called Summerford Grove and that kind of really developed into a big part of my life and and a big kind of campaign for the London Renters Union yeah so I guess that's me that kind of like brings us roughly um up to today and obviously nowadays my um involvement in in the left is is primarily journalistic which is an interesting and difficult kind of line to tread at times just because you know as a journalist you want to keep a certain healthy distance from your subjects um, of your reporting whilst at the same time you know being a values-driven media organization at Navarra Media and indeed in, in Vashti wanting the left to succeed so there's I'm now in this kind of one in one for in one for out um, position on the left where I'm sort of commentating on it whilst at the same time um, remaining active within certain kind of parts of it. Mm-hmm. Do you know the history of N- Navarra Media when it yeah. kind of emerged? Yeah, I mean, Navarra really predates me by quite a long way. So um, we're coming up to our 10 year anniversary now. It was founded in July 2011 by my colleagues, uh, James Butler and Aaron Bastani. So, um, you know, the founding of that, th- that that moment, July 2011, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, is kind of sandwiched by two massive uprisings one the student protests that happened in November December 2010 um, in which both James and Aaron were very active and then the London uprisings also known as the kind of London riots of August 2011 Um, and and so you know it was originally a podcast I believe and then kind of grew into um, what it is today which is best known still for its audio and visual work but also um, producing a lot of articles and and that's that's my job um although I do also do audio and visual stuff but yeah so it grew out of a protest movement and and it's very much a mission driven organization you might say like as you know wanting to be an objective rigorous media outlet whilst at the same time making no bones about its kind of political motivations really like Navarra's mission as I understand it is to advance um, kind of a left struggle through media. We wanted to catch up to discuss the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which is the PCSC bill, a little bit more in the protest that happened recently. It was at the beginning of May, which is uh, a little while ago, but um, I thought it'd be interesting to go into this a little bit deeper and I know that you were involved with the protest and I know that you were there and you were reporting on it as well Mm. Um, so could you explain to our listeners what the police crime sentencing and courts bill is and how does it affect the aims and the ambitions of the left so the PCSC bill 
which was tabled in March of this year, is basically an update to the Public Order Act uh, of 1986. And it's the first major change to it in about 20 years. Basically, what it seeks to do is to expand the police's power to um, control uh, demonstration and activism of various kinds using not just the law of course this bill wants to become an act and wants to be uh, legislation um, but primarily through um, police discretionary powers so one of the um, familiar qualities of this bill like many um, laws pertaining to political protest and uh, policing is its ambiguity so um, it, it kind of has a number of different arms um, and a number of different um, kind of concerns but yeah perhaps the primary one for the purposes of this conversation is protest and activism in general um, so one of the things that it does is that it updates a category um, known as domestic terrorist um, to one called aggravated activist this became kind of quite um, topical recently with the prosecution or the case against the Stansted, I always forget the number, who um, the police wanted to claim were domestic terrorists, but they didn't quite fit the bill. So this expanded category allows people like that, direct action kind of participants, environmentalists in particular, to be subject to greater kind of police power. Um, another uh, thing that it does is allow the police to um, put limits on protests that cause um, serious annoyance, this this phrase which we've heard a lot about. Um, and this kind of vague language basically is deliberately designed to um, kind of tee up police guidance, which would later accompany it were it to become law, and give the police basically quite a lot of wiggle room to decide what they um limit and what they don't and and have that kind of selective um discriminatory um approach to um to policing which we which we know that they have so yeah we know these laws are not being applied um fairly but this kind of in some ways makes more explicit the um discriminatory nature of police power and police discretion but it just so happened that the tabling of the bill coincided almost exactly with the murder of Sarah Everard um, and so that sort of um, almost you know horrifying serendipity in a way created this um, like crucible for this massive explosion of, of political activity that I don't think the, the bill would necessarily have attracted otherwise people could suddenly see the kinds of power structures that like have given rise to this bill. Do you know where they are with the bill now? I think about a month ago, um, the Conservatives announced that they were delaying the second reading of the bill. So the bill passed its first reading, you know, obviously despite the Labour Party whipping against because of the massive majority that the Conservatives have. Um, so Labour obviously U-turned and that that itself was a significant win um, for the left. Um, however, it, you know, passed its first reading. So it's now supposed to go to its second reading, but it's been delayed for unknown reasons. But, you know, that in itself is a huge win. And we should recognise that, you know, the as I say, and as we well know, the Conservatives have an 80 seat majority and the fact that they felt it necessary to delay a bill, which, you know, you would think the runway is clear for them, um, you know, is a massive statement on the power of, um, of, of, of direct action. Although it's, it's kind of interesting. And one of the intriguing things about this bill is how um, one of the other kind of um, things one of the other phenomena that it intersects with, obviously, is this kind of anti-lockdown, 
you know, libertarian um, drive that we've seen coming from kind of elements of the right wing. I was just about um, to ask you about that. Yeah, and how that could have really been what tipped the scales for the Conservatives. This feeling, you know, we, we see even you know, members of the Tory backbench like Theresa May uh, making these speeches in the um, chamber about how this PCS evil may, she herself being a former Home Secretary, it's kind of incredible. This may be a step too far. We're already like having our freedoms curbed. Like maybe this is just kind of excessive and unnecessary. And so what you hear activists say about the bill, like Sisters Uncut organizer or kind of member at the May Day protest that you were talking about earlier made this interesting statement about how like one of the really catalyzing things about this moment has been the fact that like Margaret Thatcher with the poll tax they tried to come for us all at once and I think what this person in this particular moment meant was like they tried to come for the sex workers for the GRT community for the you know labor movement for all of it at once but I I don't think what she really meant was like they also tried to come for the right-wing libertarians but that is the case and like you have this really interesting scenario where actually um kind of elements of the right are really quite supportive of the kill the bill maybe not the kill the bill movement but of the concept of killing the bill. So my question is then, so with uh, the strong opposition to the bill coming from sections of the Tory backbench, uh, what does it mean for the left to take up issues relating to civil liberties today? Yeah, Because I think that the the Tory backbenchers might make that claim about um, civil liberties um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. being where the opposition is coming from. Yeah, for sure. Definitely um, COVID has really complicated things. You know, a left which has for many years been um, pushing against a kind of creeping authoritarianism um, in the state in various ways from surveillance, like data surveillance to, you know, CCTV on the streets to identification at poll stations and and so on um, has now found itself supporting an argument that is being most vociferously made by 5g truthers by anti-vaxxers by anti-mask you know mask refusenecks and and finding itself kind of quite reluctant to make the case against lockdown you know you see a lot of people on the left like making these cases against you know over policing of black people during lockdown for example or the mental health effects of lockdown but then struggling to articulate that critique of the conservative government because they because the the kind of prevailing attitude on the left is like they didn't lock down hard enough or fast enough um and so i've yet to really see like a considered case for civil liberties during covid and a kind of a left-wing anti-lockdown uh kind of take because i think people are too afraid to make it but I mean, yeah, as as for how the left like defends civil liberties during this time, I think it's always about thinking, who are we defending and why? I think one of the things that we need to see um, in and, and perhaps also, you know, not necessarily shy away from co-opting some of these newfound civil liberties kind of champions and and co-opting them to our kind of cause but at the same time recognizing that the reason why they're championing civil civil liberties isn't because they want universal rights but because they themselves were guaranteed or thought they were guaranteed rights by virtue of their racialization by virtue of their class position they were like okay so i'm white so you told me that i wouldn't be over police but now i am like this wasn't part of the deal i want my money back and so we we, we should recognize that, that that defense of civil liberties is really just a kind of 
neoliberal complaint to the manager kind of thing. Like this wasn't the meal that I ordered um, and not really a kind of um, defense of, of, of everybody's right to, to, to kind of freedom from uh, an oppressive state. That being a logic that we now um, really understand quite intimately through coronavirus and through understanding that like until your cleaner is vaccinated, has good healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, you yourself are not protected and that like our society can't function if it has these kind of um, people fall through the cracks. So what were the aims of the Kill the Bill initiative for the left or the scope and goal of it? Yeah, you talk about it as an initiative and I think that's interesting. It kind of tends to describe itself as a coalition and I think that's quite a good term for it because it is this kind of quite loose grouping of around 100 organizations you know, nominally, those organizations are the ones that signed a joint statement, which came out at the end of March. In fact, my organization, Navarra Media, is one of them. But it includes like a really broad range of um, groups from sex worker collectives uh, to BLM chapters to left-wing media outlets. And so, I mean, I guess the the degree of coordination between those groups um, has varied and, and, and there isn't the same amount of coordination between all 100 groups as there is, for example, between BLM and Sisters Uncut who have a close relationship or Netpol and BLM and... What's Netpol? And so on. Just for... Netpol is like a police monitoring um, body um, based in the UK. The real spearheads, as we know, of the coalition are Sisters Uncut, who are this group that, similar to Navarra, kind of came about in the early 2010s, I believe in opposition to austerity cuts um, of domestic violence services. They've always been quite militant organization and led by working class women and women of color, marginalized women essentially. As we know, militant tactics often are uh, favored by people with less to lose. We shouldn't be surprised to discover that the aims and ambitions of the of the Kill the Bill coalition, which they have really set about convening, are pretty radical. So one of the key elements of the joint statement that was put out in March was, you know, we want to get no element of this bill will be acceptable to us. We want rid of it. We want it to be withdrawn or voted down. But there's not going to be we're not talking about amendments here because there is, you know, I think a, a tendency within the left. To, to revert as quickly as possible to kind of parliamentary process like we're still in the kind of like post-Corbyn um, period where we where we think that the instruments of the state might be able to work in our favor if we um, manipulate them in the right way but I think Sisters Uncut have recognized that that's unlikely to be the case and that the only representatives we have really in the commons are the Labour Party who are um, you know weren't necessarily radical to begin with but certainly are not radical now and the kinds of amendments that we're seeing tabled you know, are going to be just real, like, kind of edge tweaking and um, possibly nothing at all. You know, we've we've seen this kind of attitude from the Labour Party that we shouldn't oppose the government for its own sake. And that is obviously the raison d'etre of the opposition. So it's hard to really believe that we will have good amendments tabled. But regardless, sisters have decided that we're not going to, like, push for amendments. Although when it comes to it, it'll be interesting to see um, how that plays out. Um, but yeah, so I think, like, the aims and ambitions of the um, Kill the Bill movement are not just to kill the bill, but I think in a way to um, popularize and make acceptable um, the kind of abolitionism that motivates them and to go beyond just kind of um, this idea of police reform, whether that's 
opposing this particular bill or whatever else, electing new police and crime commissioners or uh, unconscious bias training, whatever. And and, and to really go for um, kind of impossible demands, defund, like we've had in America, um, which it should be noted is a reform. It's it's what Annie Ololoku-Tariba calls a non-reformist reform. um, But uh, at the same time, it, it is a reform. So I think like drawing people's minds beyond um, the immediate kind of um, issue, which is the bill, to how do we create a world in which the police aren't necessary in the first place? And that, in a way, I think is where the um, coalition element of the um, movement becomes really useful because actually there are so many different groups um, involved in this coalition that are in various ways trying to create that new world, um, whether that's kind of like racial justice or, you know, housing equity or better kind of work environments including for sex workers and so on together that coalition represents a patchwork of the different elements of a of a new world in which we wouldn't need policing and so i think that's kind of why the its imagination it's kind of um political imaginary has been so rich because it's informed by so many of these different groups that in their own spaces have been doing a lot of thinking and dreaming about the kind of world that we could have were we not to have police or the kind of world that we could build that wouldn't require policing Marx saw the police arise with the state um, and Bonapartism symptomatically emerging out of the crisis of bourgeois social relations under industrial means of production. How should a revolutionary left or a Marxist revolutionary left address the question of the state and the police? And is Marx's understanding of the state and the police still important today? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, you know, that's why, you know, in Britain particularly, you see this abolitionist critique um, of the police arising now and and why also that abolitionist critique has been um, propelled not just by this Kill the Bill movement but behind it this um, Black Lives Matter kind of protest movement that flared up obviously after the murder of George Floyd and and that's because um, there's a recognition that the police are um, as as Adam Elliott Cooper, who just wrote a brilliant book called Black Resistance to British Policing, says they are colonially constituted. They are not just an they are not just an arm of the state, but they are the kind of the force of the colonial state incarnate. And that is why these critiques of um, the kind of imbrication of policing and the state have been launched so well and so so well articulated by racialized people and by groups pushing for racial justice like black lives matter um and so yeah of course i think that like marx's critique is is so relevant now particularly because we are at this quite um anti-statist moment on the left which is so exciting where we're like you know the the labor party in 2017-19 were in their manifesto were calling for more police on the streets it's kind of unthinkable now you know we are so like disillusioned i think with the agents of state power and not only that but like with the kind of state's ability to um address its citizens needs i think in part not just because of the kind of crisis of police brutality that we've we've seen exposed recently but also because of coronavirus like this what has the state done for us 
various factors, coronavirus and the state's failure to address it, like the kind of racial consciousness raising that's happened in the past year, the Kill the Bill movement, and also the kind of slow death of the Labour Party in the meantime, we have this real disillusionment with um, the state and its actors. In that way, um, there is there isn't a timely moment to return to the quote that you were just um, sharing from Marx. So if we all participate in and in fact produce the crisis of bourgeois social relations that kind of give a rise to the emergence of the, of the police and the state, how do we address that crisis? You know, like there's there's like this one hand of the police, uh, police violence and brutality. And on this other hand, that um, neighborhoods really need the police. Mm. And you actually have in in the US with um, Trump, you'll, you'll have racial minorities, I don't know, Hispanics or blacks will vote for Trump on on a question of law and order. Mm. And so I, it just seems to me like this quite like all encompassing question. How does the left start to address that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's where like the police kind of become this self-perpetuating problem that the more police we have, like often you see at protests people saying that like it's when the police arrive that the kind of violence escalates. And the, so the kind of um, response to uh, social problems with kind of violent suppression often leads to a kind of um, a, a frustration and, a, and an exacerbation of those of, of, of those problems. And so in a way, I think it's kind of about thinking beyond the immediacy of the problem to the diseases of, the, of, which, of which these are symptoms. And so, you know, in a way, I think that's why, um, you know, for example, Mark Neoclius, the author of Critical Theory of Policing, he talks about how the demand for defund is premature because we don't live in a society that doesn't need policing. We live in a society that does need policing. And so when we think of our work as abolitionists um, on the left, it's tempting because of the kind of popular discourses around it to think immediately about the police but actually abolitionism is about mental health provision abolitionism is about wealth redistribution abolitionism is about healthcare. abolitionism is about almost everything except the police the police in some ways or at least in mark neoclis's view is the kind of final uh, piece of the puzzle or the final jenga block that can be removed once all of the other um pieces have been rearranged so um yeah I, I think it's it's a helpful kind of reframing of what we mean when we talk about abolitionism beyond the institution of policing and 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 why we need to be kind of imaginative like i was saying and ambitious with our thinking beyond like reforming or even defunding the police no we need to change everything around the police so that they become irrelevant and unnecessary that said i also do think and i've been thinking about this a lot recently about the the way in which the police reinforce a kind of basic myth misanthropy which is at the heart of a lot of um which is at the heart of capitalism. Like uh, Adam Elliot Cooper, who I've recently interviewed, so who, whose ideas are fresh in my mind, talks about this idea of progressive movements relying on trust. And progress generally relies on trust, a, a, a willingness to believe that other people have a basic moral goodness that they want to manifest and that you don't need to measure your moral goodness by the moral badness of other people. There doesn't need to be a counterpart to your moral goodness. And therefore that, you know, what capitalism tries to do is to make us mistrust one another, to want to one up and to want to protect ourselves from the kind of wrongdoing of others. And and, and, and fundamentally is driven by a, a feeling that like other people are out to get us <laughs> um, or out to better, like to, to, to better us or whatever it is. And that like 
the police helped to um, reinforce that idea with visible displays of suppression of the wrong ends of the bad of the the baddies that we're kind of constantly warned of. When actually maybe the baddies don't really exist or exist in far fewer numbers than we think. Or what is a baddie? Like is it and, and what conditions give rise to people who do who do bad things? Yeah, the police help to embed this misanthropy that perpetuates capitalism and that uh, um, breaking free of that requires a degree of trust in in human in human nature which I think you see in a lot of like um you know left-wing scholars work uh, I'm thinking primarily now of David Graeber just this like faith that people are good and they're doing their best and they're not out to get you and it's like not actually much more complicated than that Maybe we can start to round it up. Um, so mm. I've got a question and it's kind of going beyond the Kill the Bill stuff. Have, and if so, how have the aims of uh, the London Renters Union and Navarra Media as leftist organisa- organisations changed in a post-Corbyn world? Or kind of what's mm. the future of these organisations? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I know Navarra a little bit better than the LRU. I mean, I can speak a little bit to both, but I mean, like, I'm more involved in Navarra than in the LRU. You may know Navarra became quite closely kind of involved with the Corbyn project in various ways, because, as I said, we're a values driven organization. This seemed the best vehicle for advancing the kind of leftism that we believed in, albeit, you know, a flawed vehicle, as all of them are. We became kind of quite attached to that project um, in various ways for a number of years. After that failed, and um, as the Labour Party kind of has faded from the um, lives of many leftists, um, that has freed us up, I think, to revisit a lot of the themes that we um, began by thinking about. Like I was saying, we were born in a protest moment and we're in yet another one. That engagement with, uh, and that close scrutiny of, and kind of, you know, it's a cliche, but critical friendship of protest movements is something that Navarra was born to do. And I think is where our value really lies because the problem with electoral politics is it often feels incredibly antagonistic and therefore you're just pushed into a position of defense a lot of the time whereas with these movements I think there's a bit more of a kind of discursive kind of back and forth type relationship that we can have with them where we can be critical in a bit more of a an interesting way like my colleague Claire Heimer recently wrote a really long piece on um, the youth strikes and what happened and some of the internal kind of dynamics and strengths and weaknesses that um characterize that movement and why it um, has kind of faded and similarly I'm trying to do something similar at the moment actually with Kill the Bill and kind of compile a bit of an oral history looking quite frankly and and critically at like that movement and so I think post-Corbyn, Navarra has um, been able to expand its remit slightly beyond the Labour Party, which came to define quite a lot of our work, um, and also offer a bit more critical um, commentary um, than we were able to do in that embattled moment that was the, that were the Corbyn years. Um, when it comes to the LRU, obviously the Labour Party were one of our primary targets in terms of uh, lobbying 
during the Corbyn years. But now we have Thangam Debonair, um, who is very pro-landlord and very unsympathetic to renters. And um, I suppose that was incredibly frustrating for the, the union um, and, and has been throughout the pandemic. And it's led not just to the frustration of union members, but to the evictions, legal and illegal, of uh, many of our members and, and many many of our non-members um, and, and people who don't actually um, even realise that unions can 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 help them and can support them so but I think in a way then the Kill the Bill movement presents this really exciting opportunity for the uh, London Renters Union to kind of build momentum and to rally behind something which doesn't require kind of parliamentary permission um, and 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 kind of political um, structure and that actually um, like I was saying these kinds of impossible demands can be made because there's like a, a, a sort of platform for them and well, as well as negotiating over small aspects of um, you know housing bills and, and amendments that we might want Labour politicians to table we can also do the work of making big impossible demands about housing like I was saying that might help to construct a world in which we don't need policing for example like we've seen recently in Glasgow with the detention of uh, asylum seekers and providing housing to people um, on the peripheries of, of society and that's that's the other thing about the kind of the anti-statist turn on the left and, and why it's quite exciting for the LRU I suppose because it turns our minds away from or like pulls our gaze beyond the citizen as the central kind of entity of um the, like the rights bearing um individual um to the to the non-citizen and to the and, and and to those you know um undocumented asylum seeking and so on who who require our help just as much um and so i think that kind of accumulation of, of, of those various things, the anti-statism, the kind of extra parliamentary nature of this organising and so on, has been really helpful for the LRU in many ways in pushing it to kind of think bigger about what is possible for um, it to demand. That, this has been an interesting discussion. So thanks for joining us on the podcast. We no, will... Thank you. Yeah, well, I'll include links to everything you've touched on. All the articles you've mentioned, we'll put links to in the description. So if you're listening and you want to check them out, um, just have a look there. And um, yeah, thanks again. It was great to chat. As always, if you like the podcast, share it. Send us a review on Apple Podcasts. Write us a comment, send us an email at shitplatypussess at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at shitplatypussess. Platypus has got a lot on offer this summer with three reading groups, and we'll include all the details um, about how you can get involved in the description. So I thought I'd catch up with Chris, who's the chief pedagogue to discuss kind of briefly as an introduction what's on the syllabus um, and why these topics now. So Chris, you could briefly introduce each of the reading groups and give us a taster of what's in store on the different syllabuses. Okay, so we have one common syllabus um, across all of our local chapters for summer of 2021, and that is uh, Adorno's Negative Dialectics. Um, So it's dedicated to looking at that book in its entirety with very little but some um, kind of framing articles uh, including one by Gillian Rose and another by Adorno himself uh, on why still philosophy 
and uh, several articles that I've written for the Platypus Review that uh, derive from our reading group pedagogy in the normal academic year annual reading group on the question of Marxism and philosophy. In many ways, that reading group on Adorno's Negative Dialectics proceeds almost directly from the final readings of the academic year annual syllabus. We have two weeks of readings by Adorno at the end of that syllabus, and so this uh, takes off directly from that, especially from the readings in the final week on uh, marginalia to theory and praxis and resignation. But really, it could be captured by that idea of why still philosophy, um, the title of Adorno's essay with which we begin the syllabus. In some ways, uh, another reading group that we're doing this summer a more specialized reading group. So we're doing that common reading group on Adorno's negative dialectics, but we're doing two specialized reading groups. Uh, one of those is on Hegel and Marxism and has some similar motivations, uh, but really has as its goal establishing Hegel's method, if you will, um, through uh, a sh the shorter logic, the encyclopedia logic, rather than trying to plow through the full science of logic and selections from the philosophy of right, two of the three major works by Hegel. So we're not doing a phenomenology of spirit, which is usually more popular on the left, but in fact, uh, it's philosophy of right and the science of logic that's more crucially important for Marxism. Uh, for Marx himself, uh, for Marx and Engels, and for subsequent Marxists, certainly for Adorno as well. Adorno I don't think he says very much about phenomenology of spirit, but he says quite a bit about the science of logic and the philosophy of right. And so we're, we're going to be establishing in, in the specialized reading group on Hegel and Marxism the importance of Hegel's logic for Marx and for Marxism. And so that reading group will also, in addition to readings by Marx and Engels on the Hegelian dialectic from various points in their career from the early on in the 1840s, through the period of the Grundrisse and Das Kapital in the 1850s and 1860s, up through um, Engels' later writings. And we will finish that reading group with Adorno, his three lectures on Hegel, uh, published as a book called Hegel Three Studies. Um, so those two reading groups have sim some similar motivations, but are looking at the, um, the question from two very different angles. One from like a kind of retrospective view on 20th century philosophy in the wake of the failure of the world proletarian socialist revolution after World War I. So Heidegger, you know, understood and also analytic philosophy, positivism in the social sciences understood as symptoms. So Heideggerian philosophy, positivism, both in philosophy and in the social sciences um, and in the intellectual culture at large, as symptoms of the failure of the revolution, which it's interesting. Uh, Adorno always had this, it's a kind of a lifelong project of his, starting in the 1920s, but certainly in the 1930s, he did a dissertation at Oxford on Kierkegaard. And then he wrote another book on Husserl. It was always an ambition of Adorno's to treat philosophy as a symptom of capitalism. And his other fellow Frankfurt School members were very skeptical of that. Even though Marcuse had done some similar writings in the 30s and then went on to write Reason and Revolution on Hegel and the aftermath of Hegel. Uh, but Horkheimer was very skeptical of being able to derive 
the contradiction of capitalism from the phenomenon of philosophy. Marx very famously writes in his 1843, celebrated 1843 letter to Ruga for the ruthless critique of everything existing. He says, we could begin anywhere. We could, we could begin with political economy. We could begin with the state. We could begin with religion. We could begin with philosophy. And we could, you know, pursue our project starting from any point. Uh, this is something that uh, Lukács picks up on um, in What is Orthodox Marxism? And it's just that the salient phenomenon that Marx wanted to pursue was uh, the critique of bourgeois political economy because of how political economy was so central to the demands of the working class in its class struggle against the capitalists in the industrial era. But I don't think that Marx or Engels ever gave up on their early, so, you know, Contra, Althusser, and others, I don't think they ever gave up on their critique of philosophy from their young days as, as young Hegelians, as, as very, very young uh, members of the cohort of young or left Hegelians in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, uh, Adorno picks up on that. And Adorno even says in Negative Dialectics, he says, well, we're going to be accused in, in addressing things the way we are, we're going to be accused of regressing back to a kind of young Hegelian position. Mm-hmm. regressing mm-hmm. from Marxism back into a young Hegelian position. But he says, but this is in fact what history has driven us to. It's driven us back into the crisis of Hegelianism, which for Adorno, as well as for Marx and Engels, the crisis of Hegelianism in philosophy, even if it was something that went on in people's heads, was a phenomenon of the crisis of society and capitalism, crisis of bourgeois society and capitalism. So that's what we're going to be trying to get at through these two of the three reading groups we're doing this summer. So although I guess these, it's a perennial issue, um, the crisis of philosophy, um, but why are we addressing this in 2021, do you feel? Well, um, part of the Marxology of the millennial left has been uh, philosophical and has been a kind of... Uh, returning to the German idealist roots of Marxism, uh, especially against postmodernism. And, uh, you know, I mentioned Althusser, uh, but also other, you know, thinkers on the firmament of academia, Lacan, who's a Heideggerian um, Freudian, Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze, the French fries, are all Heideggerians. And they all, they all are anti-Hegelian. And that anti-Hegelianism was their anti-Marxism, meaning the critique of Hegel is the critique of Marx and the critique of Marxism, even though they might in some ways more or less try to salvage something from either Marxism or really usually just from Marx, but as against the Hegelianism of of Marx and of Marxism, uh, because they associated that with Stalinism in the 20th century, a kind of uh, degeneration of Marxism into a kind of right Hegelian affirmation of history and of history as automatic progress. And that's not only Stalinist, it's also social democratic. Um, So Walter Benjamin uh, famously critiqued the faith in progress of the social democrats. But of course, Benjamin's not only talking about the social democrats, he's also talking about the Stalinists, but he can't name it as such. And, you know, famously introduces 
the idea of the retrogression of society. So again, philosophy as a phenomenon of retrogression, as opposed to, you know, how the postmodernists and the new left regarded Hegel as like, you know, a dead white guy who was affirming kind of racist, imperialist, Eurocentric, universal history. Now, there are good reasons why um, they might have been troubled by the kind of affirmative Hegelianism that surrounded them in the mid-20th century with Stalinism and with social democracy, the degree to which social democrats still had any kind of Marxism to them. But what we've had since the 60s, by contrast, has been the attempt to liquidate universal history, liquidate history, and also liquidate philosophy. In other words, to to abandon the kind of grand project of philosophy as the self-consciousness of freedom. You know, bourgeois philosophy, which Marxism inherits that, that task of the self-consciousness of freedom, you know, as a historical project of society and changing society and politics. That's how Marx and Engels understood the struggle for socialism. They said that uh, the proletarian struggle for socialism inherited German idealist philosophy. How would you describe the Marxology of the millennials, the turn to German idealism? I think that, again, they, they sort of scratch at the surface of, well, their own academic pedagogy. And so they know that something is there, and they know that something's not quite right in, in the way it's being described. Um, so they know that you know, people are, are kind of flogging the corpse of Hegel endlessly. And so it's kind of like, well, what, what was there? What is that about, right? And how do we understand this? So even though they're schooled and miseducated in a kind of Althusserian kind of materialism as against the uh, idealism of Hegelianism and Marxism, they kind of know that something's not quite right there. And I think it's part of the larger struggle with liberalism. In other words, you know, well, how is socialism different from liberalism? How is it different from whether progressive liberalism or classical liberalism? You know, Jacobin magazine of the, you know, uh, Democratic Socialists of America here in the United States. And obviously they have an international influence like with the Tribune in the UK and elsewhere. They find it necessary to publish articles on Hegel and on John Locke and on Nietzsche. You know, they find it necessary to, to engage in a kind of ritual rehearsal of these issues. And we know that Hegel has this ambiguous position, right, of, uh, well, Marx was a Hegelian, and then he broke with Hegelianism. But did he break with Hegelianism? How did he break with Hegelianism? It's a question that Lukács uh, posed in his, his essay, What is Orthodox Marxism in History and Class Consciousness? How do we now stand regarding the Hegelian dialectic? In other words, what does the Hegelian dialectic mean to us today? I don't think the millennials have, the millennial left has really uh, confronted that squarely or sought to answer that directly, but they have very shyly, meekly approached it. Would it be a can of worms to open the question of why Hegel's logic was more important to Marx than uh, the phenomenology of spirit? Uh, it's not really opening a can of worms. I mean, I myself can answer that pretty straightforwardly which is that the phenomenology of spirit is a prehistory of bourgeois thought and consciousness. In other words, the phenomenology of spirit brings us all the way up to 
the French Revolution. It, it gives us a kind of a phenomenological constitution of consciousness through all the phases of its appearance, all the way up to Hegel's own moment. And so in that sense, it's not about capitalism at all, because Hegel's not living yet in the self-consciousness of industrial capitalism. And it's why it's so mistaken what people usually do with the phenomenology of spirit. The one thing that the left takes from it is the master-slave dialectic. But the master-slave dialectic is actually not really a dialectic at all. It's a, it's a pre-dialectical condition out of which consciousness emerges. Meaning for Hegel, neither the master nor the slave has consciousness. And consciousness first emerges with the slave. And it emerges with the slave's recognition of labor, becoming self-conscious through labor, and in so doing, renders the master irrelevant. So that's a story of the bourgeois revolution that doesn't address capitalism at all, because capitalism is the, um, as Marx puts it, it's the struggle of right against right. If for Hegel, there's no right on the side of the master, only on the side of the slave, and only when the slave attains self-consciousness of their labor. And so, whereas for Marx, capitalism is the struggle of right against right. In other words, both the capitalists and the workers have right on their side, because they both represent the interests of society, which, of course, most leftists can't see that at all. They just see the capitalists as uh, more or less criminal vultures, you know, predators ripping off society. Uh, they don't take seriously the idea that the capitalists are, as Marx put it, the uh, character masks of capital and are rep representing the actual social interest in capital and in the preservation of the value of capital. You know, they, they don't understand that at all. They just think, oh, well, the, uh, the capitalist is as, as uh, illegitimate as the slave master. No, mm -hmm. no. Mm -hmm. And of course, the slave master was not illegitimate until he became illegitimate, right? And he only becomes illegitimate as a function of the slave recognizing their place in society as, you know, members of society through their labor. And that's mm -hmm. the bourgeois revolution. Mm -hmm. That's actually a nice segue to our third reading group. Yeah, no, go ahead. Which is on uh, the black question in the United States and the left, um, a history of the black question and the left in the United States, which is going to be one of our specialized reading groups this summer. And was motivated in part, of course, by Black Lives Matter. So the subtitle of the uh, reading group is From 1776 to Black Lives Matter. Um, it could also have been From 1619 to Black Lives Matter. Uh, because, in fact, the syllabus there begins with um, slavery. Uh, begins with the colonial era slavery uh, with the 17th century, with the 1600s, uh, with an essay by Barbara Fields. Uh, who does a really wonderful review uh, and just synopsis of just how much had to change to introduce racism into slavery. In other words, we, we tend to think of, oh, Europeans were racist, and that's why they went and enslaved people, and etc. But in fact, she shows just the opposite, that um, slavery, of course, predates racism. We know that. But that Racism really comes later, it comes after slavery in, in the American colonial context and is something that has to be enforced over time. In other words, uh, it, it's, it's not like you start out with racism and then people struggle against it all the way up to the present. It's rather racism is very historically specific. 
it's not a sort of perennial thing that, um, you know, it's not a sin in the biblical sense that we have to constantly um, repent for, but it's a very specific historical phenomenon. And of course, is really a phenomenon, not only of the colonial era, uh, but then later of capitalism. So, you know, that syllabus has some readings that we normally do in Platypus on anti-Black racism in the United States, but it reaches back further historically into the colonial era and into the uh, the era leading up to the Civil War abolitionism. Um, so it, it takes on the question of slavery as opposed to our normal uh, way of dealing with this historically in Platypus is to start with the Civil Rights Movement and start with how the Civil Rights Movement understands post-Reconstruction history, post-Civil War history, uh, understands where Jim Crow came from, uh, because, of course, that's what they were struggling against in the Civil Rights era. So we're, we're reaching back further into the colonial and slavery era uh, than we usually do, but precisely to address the 1619 Project's misapprehension that the struggle of Black people in the United States has been one thing continuously since arriving in the English colonies in 1619. It has, it has not. It's changed fundamentally many ways. Um, so we're, we're going to try to address that through the, that summer reading group um, and uh, picking up uh, an observation I made in an article I wrote last year during the uh, Black Lives Matter protests after uh, the murder of George Floyd, Republicans in riots, that we're not dealing with 400 years of slavery, but 40 years of deindustrialization. If you want to understand what's called racism today, um, there's also the question of whether we should really take up the question of racism at all. So I mentioned Barbara Fields, but also Adolf Reed. Most people don't pay attention to this, but they say to talk about racism is already to concede the point. In other words, uh, what Barbara Fields and her sister talk about is racecraft. If you start with race and start with the discussion of racism, you're actually conceding to it. You're actually perpetuating it. You're, you're engaged in racecraft. And, uh, and Adolf Reed, in an article that will also be on the syllabus, The Limits of Anti-Racism, he says the subtitle of that is How to Describe an Almost Indescribable Thing, Racism. All right, so there's a question of whether we're really dealing with, with you know, if, if that's really the issue at all. Which is not to say that people don't have, you know, racist attitudes or whatever crazy ideas or psychology they might have, feelings, opinions, but that may not be what's actually going on in society. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was never really what was going on in society. Even in the Jim Crow era when it was explicitly institutionalized by law. So how might the reading groups provide a more critical reflection on the obstacles, some obstacles that the left is facing in, in the present? Obstacles to a left, I guess, like um, anti-racism would be one of those. Obstacles to um, socialism, obstacles to yeah. the struggle for socialism. Um, yeah. Well, obviously, I think of the three reading groups, the one that's most clearly dealing with the present day left is the black question in the United States um, from 1776 to Black Lives Matter. The other two are more, we might say, Marxological, more about the history of Marxism, the prehistory, the deep history of Marxism itself, and then the aftermath 
the 20th century aftermath of the failure of Marxism um, and the recrudescence of philosophy in that sense. Um, so, you know, the negative dialectics reading group might be challenging to some people who are not familiar with Heidegger, for example. But Heidegger is, in many ways, the philosopher of the 20th century. But that might say less about Heidegger than it does about the 20th century. And the 20th century is, of course, the century of the failure of socialism. Uh, many people would think that somehow the 20th century is the success of socialism in places like the Soviet Union and communist China, Eastern Europe, Cuba, Vietnam, North Korea. But indeed, uh, Adorno um, would consider those phenomena, those countries, to be phenomena of the failures of socialism. And again, Heidegger, of course, is a deeply anti-Marxist philosopher and a deeply anti-capitalist philosopher, and he's someone who thought of Marxism as actually furthering capitalism. Uh, in that way, opens the door to the left being anti-capitalist, actually agreeing with Heidegger. Right, mm -hmm. So the new left in particular might agree with Heidegger about Marxism. In other words, the degree to which they sought to change Marxism and in many ways really overthrow Marxism. Even if they claim to be upholding Marxism. Um, well, right. And what they were upholding, though, was not the Marxism of like Marx and Engels themselves or even people like uh, Lenin or Rosa Luxemburg or Trotsky. They upheld Marxism in the form of Mao and Che Guevara, very deliberately so. They didn't want the older Marxism. They wanted a newer Marxism. And uh, again, they wanted a Marxism that was not, in their minds, Eurocentric, imperialistic. And so, you know, they looked to, you know, supposed new revolutionary subjects. They also really changed the object they thought of the problem of Stalinism is that it's too implicated in capitalism. It looks too much like capitalism. It's hierarchical, it's bureaucratic. Um, it looked too much like the capitalism they faced in the mid-20th century in the West. And so they very much embraced a philosophical rebellion against that. And that's Heidegger and his Epigenes. That's Heidegger and his uh, postmodernist offspring. Uh, we do end up talking about that a great deal in Platypus, but um, in some ways we'll be putting a finer point on it with Adorno's negative dialectics, because of course this is Adorno's critique of Heidegger, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which can be said to anticipate postmodernism. Uh, postmodernism hadn't quite emerged yet for Adorno. It's not quite on Adorno's radar, um, but we could say that postmodernism begins with Heidegger. It begins in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. It begins with the disenchantment of modernity. And that's why Heidegger is, you know, uh, reaches back to Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, to uh, contemporaries of Marx who reject modernity as opposed to trying to um, see beyond modernity the way Marx and Marxism did. So, yeah, I, I think we've covered a lot of bases is there anything else you would like to add? Well, the, um, on the black question in the United States, we do have an unusual character on our reading list, and that's Harold Cruz. We have selections from The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual from 1967, 
And he is from a Stalinist background, and he's also a black nationalist. So he's someone who broke with the Communist Party USA, but in the direction of black nationalism. But he tried to formulate a black nationalism that was not the black nationalism promulgated by the Communist Party. And actually, he saw the black nationalism that he, or black separatism, that he was trying to promulgate as being uniquely American and really about the project of an American Marxism, that there had been a failure to develop what he called an American Marxism that would be different from the Marxism of European countries and that the black struggle was different from the struggle of European national minorities because the United States is not really a nation in the European mode, but is rather what he called a nation of nations, meaning it's a nation of three nations. He said white, black, and red. And by red, he meant Native American and Chicano. Um, And so he thought that you needed a totally different way of approaching the question of oppressed minorities in the United States. It couldn't be modeled on the European uh, Marxist models of any kind. And so he's, he has a separatist critique of black separatism in the 1960s New Left. He's got some interesting parallels, however, with um, the Frankfurt School in the critique of culture that he mounts. So he says that the failure of, uh, of, to constitute an American Marxism is tied to the failure of producing an authentic American culture. He thinks that American culture is just derivative of European culture and is kind of superficial entertainment. Um, there's no American culture because there's no American Marxism. It's a really interesting thesis. Uh, and that there was a moment in which an American, an authentic American culture and American Marxism might have been developed, and that's before World War I. That's with what he calls the Greenwich Village scene. But that the problem is that the American left got dominated by the Russian Revolution after World War I, and imported this bad European models of culture and politics that didn't really fit the United States. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the black people were the chief victims of this because their their literature, their art could only be appropriated, could only be recognized in European terms, and that falsified it. Yeah, I, there were some other cultural figures on, on the um, the black question reading group as well, like Claude McKay, I saw was on there. Oh, yeah. And, um... Claude McKay, who's a great poet, um, interesting literary figure, uh, novelist, a little bit of a, of a tragic figure as far as Marxism and the left. He became a kind of uh, anti-communist later. Yeah, he's an interesting, because he participated in the early uh, Communist International, in the early Third International, and so he's Didn't an interlocutor. Did Lenin ask that he was involved? Yeah, I'm not sure how he came to go to Russia. But um, certainly Lenin and the Russian communists were very much interested in the black question in the United States. And so there's some interesting dialogue there uh, with regard to like John Reed and uh, also Trotsky. Um, There's some, yeah, sort of interesting stuff that's taken up. So I think that this syllabus that Pam formulated, Pam Nogales, she'll be leading that reading group, there are some false notes that are that are hit by the early American communist left, whether it's John Reed or Claude McKay. For instance, in a very glaring way, John Reed dismisses the uh, struggle against slavery in the American Civil War. He just says, oh, no, the Civil War wasn't really about slavery. It was about northern capital wanting to dominate the South. That has to do with the fact that the ruling party in the United States at the time 
was the Republican Party. And so the bitterness towards the Republican Party as having betrayed Reconstruction is very palpable on the left, um, especially for someone like John Reed. If not, it, it wouldn't have had the same kind of animus in, in an earlier figure like Eugene Debs. You know, the Republicans at that time are the progressive liberals, and so it becomes important to shatter their myth of being the party of the Civil War and Reconstruction, and also the Black Party. I mean, that's the other thing, is that um, the Republicans are the Black Party at that time. So there's a whole Black patronage system in the North and the South. There are uh, Black people, middle-class people, who have federal jobs that are given by the administrations, by the Republican administrations. And so they have, you know, the the same as today's Democratic Party. They have a black patronage system. They are the black party. You know, they're the party of Booker T. Washington. And so there's an animus towards that uh, uh, history of American politics that could be lost. In other words, you could just read it from like a new left or post-new left perspective and say, see, the Civil War wasn't really about slavery or about black freedom, it was just about northern capitalists and their imperial domination of the South and later of the world. You know, and that's a very popular trope on the left. By the way, on the British left, Tarek Ali, among others, will muse aloud and say maybe it would have been better for the world if the South had won the Civil War because it would have stopped U.S. imperialism. Yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> yeah. And so this is what we're dealing with, right? We're dealing with a lot of... Um, a lot of 20th century detritus, garbage, mm. Mm. that comes in the failure of socialism. Well, we hope to get to the bottom of that with um, some of really group topics. Indeed. Thanks for joining us, Chris. All right. Thanks, Sophia. Take it easy. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Delaggi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!